I want you to open your Bible to Romans chapter 13. And I've entitled this today, Time is Running Out. Now, most of you nowadays, you do have a a smartphone, or even if you have a regular flip phone or, or whatever, most of them have built into them now timers or an app that's a timer, clock, alarm clock, so forth. And uh, I don't know about you, I use my timer all the time. I uh, have different times when I have it remind me of things. If I'm uh, doing something as far as a short period of exercise, I'll have it do help me with that. And you set the timer. And, and when you set the timer, of course, the timer is set according to whoever's controlling the device. Well, unless you share that with somebody, they don't know what the time is that you have set on there. And really, much in the same way, on a much bigger scale though, God has a timer, and only God knows when his timer goes off. Now, there's a lot going on today and a lot of talk about when the rapture is going to take place, where we sit as far as the last days, what's coming, what's going on behind the scene, what about conspiracies, you know, are the, all the physicians lined up in the medical centers with their uh, implantable chips and all this kind of stuff, or where this is going. You know, obviously the technology is in place for a lot of different things concerning the last days. But as far as when the rapture of the church will take place, the only one who knows is God. And it is in his mind, and he has a time when he plans on making that happen. In the meantime, just like a regular timer, okay, and it is a biblical concept. Now, we don't know when it'll get down to zero and things will ding, so to speak. Actually, it'll be a trumpet sound for us. But on God's perspective, he's the one who knows how much time is left. And as each moment goes by, that time is getting less and less. And friend, God doesn't want us to lose sleep over it. What God wants us to do is he wants us to take heed to that and understand that from his perspective, his timer has been in countdown mode for a long time. And we are coming close to the time. Now, we know biblically what's gonna happen uh, according to scripture during this coming, what the Bible calls the tribulation period, the time of Jacob's trouble, the seven years of the worst time that the world has ever known. And I believe with all my heart, and I think it's clear in scripture, that the rapture of the church, the catching of the way of the church out of the world to the Lord, we're gonna meet him in the air, that is gonna take place before that seven year tribulation period begins. We're seeing all kinds of things in the days in which we live. Uh, Even things, you know, we have talked many times about where does the United States of America fit into prophecy? It's not there, okay? Simply put, it's not mentioned in scripture. You know, people want to take vague Old Testament prophecies and say, well, that's probably the United States there and all that. We'd be best off just to forget that stuff. Understand this. In scripture, there is no United States of America. Now, what does that mean? Am I saying that we're on the brink of collapse? Am I saying, I'm not saying anything but what I just said, okay? U.S. is not in prophecy. What is gonna happen to it? Well, we don't know what's gonna happen to it. I do know this, though. Whatever happens to it, most likely is not going to take place from one day of greatness to the next day of dismal failure. There's gonna be 
of things that will take place that are going to bring in what I believe the demise of our country sometime in the future. I certainly hope, and we pray as a church and we pray as individuals, my wife and I pray regularly that God would keep us free as a nation until the rapture takes place. Honestly, if we are free until the rapture, then I could see where the rapture could bring a collapse in America because the fact that the only thing really that has kept us from the direct judgment of God is the amount of believers or those who propagate and promote biblical values, okay? Uh, Proverbs says, now I know people will hear that and they'll say, well, wait a minute though, not everybody who does that is a Christian. I know that, I know that, and so do you. But the Proverbs tells us, the book of Proverbs, righteousness exalts a nation, sin is a reproach unto any people. The word nation there has to do with uh, the nations of the world. It's not just talking about the nation of Israel. And it can't be talking about just save people. No, I think it's talking about a, a moral quality of the nation in which you live. Those nations that promote biblical values, that have a Judeo-Christian foundation, and stand on that and hold to that, those are the nations that will see the blessing of God. Does that mean everybody's going to heaven? No, of course not. But what it does mean is this, God honors his word. And it's a matter of sowing and reaping. That's what that verse comes down to. It's a matter of sowing and reaping. So that being said, remember, God is the one. And as I have been up here talking and introducing this message today, the timer of God is going down, 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 down. We don't know when it will so-called ding, but we do know that God's in control of it and it is going to take place. Now, in Romans chapter 13, where we left off last week, in verse 7, it says, Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom. Both of those are different types of taxes. Fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor, owe no man anything, but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. Now, as I mentioned last week, verse 8, a lot of people want to take that and extract that out of context. And they'll say, well, uh, see that? Yeah, you, as a Christian, you can't have any debt. No, that's not what it's saying. And as we talked about last week, Jesus told believers that they can lend to people. And so if debt is a sin in and of itself, then uh, God is encouraging believers to sin or to tempt unbelievers to sin. That's not what it's talking about here. The idea is don't let your debts remain outstanding. All right. Not only that, and in the context, that would make sense because it says, render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute and so forth. So there are people that we owe things to. I know we don't want to owe the government anything. I get that. But, uh, But nevertheless, here's the point. Owe no man anything, but what? What do we owe people? Here you go, verse eight. But to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. This issue of time running out, we're going to look at three major issues concerning this and the rest of this passage today. And so the first point I want to mention is this. We see the right attitude in our service. As people who have trusted Jesus Christ the Savior, we know that we have eternal life. We know we're going to heaven when we die. As believers, God has a life for us to live. It is a wonderful thing to have your sins forgiven and have a home waiting for you in heaven and have the assurance of salvation through the word of God 
and through faith in Jesus Christ and the promises of Scripture. But yet, as we have seen for several weeks now, God has a plan for the life of the believer. And so he wants us to serve him, not because we have to, not because if we don't, we'll go to hell. No, he wants us to serve him because that is the proper response to um, his saving us. And not only that, that's why he leaves us here as believers once we're saved. And so the right attitude for our service, verses 8 through 10, loving one another, you see, here's the point of verse 8, loving one another is a debt that we will never fully pay off in this life. Why? Because as long as we live, we are to love other people. As a matter of fact, verse 8 is clear. We owe that to people. We owe that to love them, okay? It is to be the way of life for the believer, for the Christian, Verse nine, for this. Now, those of you who were raised very familiar with the 10 commandments, here you go. For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill towards his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, this is profound. It's profound. I've said from time to time, I've said, uh, you know, it might shock some people. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with the Ten Commandments. And a society needs guidelines and laws to govern it, okay? You have to have that. Because people want to sin and they want to go against the word of God and there needs to be laws in place that govern that. But for the believer, we have a new law, a higher law to live by and that law is the law of love. And here's the truth of it. If we as Christians live under the control of the Holy Spirit and live being guided by this principle of love towards one another, Here's the truth of it. I know this shocks some people. You don't even have to know all 10 commandments. You will fulfill the 10 commandments if you walk in love. That's exactly what these scriptures say. Look at it. Oh, no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this thou shalt not commit adultery, that's sin. Thou shalt not kill or murder, that's sin. Thou shalt not steal, that's a sin. Thou shalt not bear false witness, lie about others, that's a sin. Thou shalt not covet, that's a sin. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended or summed up in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Those other things thou shalt not, those are the, that's the negative aspect. The positive aspect is if we love other people, we will be fulfilling the law. You see, if I love my neighbor, I will not commit adultery with his wife. You see it? How simple is that? If I love my neighbor, I will not murder him. I will not steal from him. And on it goes. I would not want him to do these things against me. And therefore, if I love him, I will not do those things against him. It takes care of it. And this is the way we as believers are supposed to live. I should love him enough to not commit these sins against him. It is a focus... In this age of grace, the focus is not on thou shalt not. The focus is on positively loving other people and our actions, that love in action, okay, that uh, 1 Corinthians 13 
talks about, love in action. There it's called, the word is translated, agape love is translated there as charity. Okay, that's not a mistake. I think the King James translators had in mind that it's love in action, and that's how we show our love. Hold your place here and look with me to Matthew 22, and I want you to go with me to verse 36. Jesus talked about it. It came to him, they said, Master, verse 36, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? There were over 600, by the way. Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. And by the way, you notice the first of the Ten Commandments, the first set, the first part have to do with our relationship to God, then our relationship to man. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. He says, these two commandments sum up everything for your life. That being said, we are living in an interesting day in the church age. Now, it isn't just today that that what I'm about to talk about has taken place, because Paul dealt with it even in his day. But to be honest with you, I have seen this so much in my time in ministry that uh, it's enough to kind of make you sick, all right? Some interesting characters are running around today in the body of Christ. Now, I have a I have a name for them, and uh, to be honest with you, I look back in some of my older messages on some of my commentary on these passages, and I came over a term that I frankly had forgotten since the last time we did Romans, and it was found in the passage here, not in the text, but in my notes, and I came up with a term, and I want to kind of revive it, okay? Grace twisters, okay? The grace twisters are among us. Now, let me say this. I believe strongly in the grace of God. We're saved by grace. We are kept by grace. We uh, we live under grace. What is grace? Grace is God's unmerited favor towards us. It's his undeserved mercy or kindness towards us. But what's happening today, people, and I'm talking about believers, believers, people who have been saved by grace through faith, they are distorting grace to the point that they become rebels towards God in the way in which they live. In other words, they know they have eternal security, and what they do is they walk all over that, taking that liberty that they have, that security in Christ, and abusing that in the way they live their lives. I see it all over the place. They're so hung up on no one judging them that on a regular basis they flaunt their liberty in Christ. And whenever anybody points something out that they're doing that is clearly against scripture, they pull out what I call the L card. Legalist, you're a legalist, okay? Because you're telling me that I shouldn't do something. And that's not for anybody to tell me but God. Well, friend, here's the truth of it. God's already told you it's wrong, all right? That person is your friend. They're not judging you. They're telling you what the judge has already said, They're reminding you of that. That's not legalism. That is exhortation. That's love in action. That somebody would do that for us. And yet we see this all over the place. Our freedom in Christ, friend, is to be used in serving the Lord and other people. Our freedom in Christ is not for us to just do our own thing, to do whatever we want to do as if, well, it doesn't matter. It does matter. Nothing could be clearer from Scripture. 
If you uh, came into the study beginning in Romans chapter 12, that has become abundantly clear. Let me show you another passage on this. Look at Galatians chapter 5 with me. The book of Galatians chapter 5. Turn there. Grace twisters. They're all over the place. Uh, I have a a, a very good friend who's in the ministry and um, just had major split in their church over this issue. Well, this was about over a year ago now. Major split in their church. Why? Because there are people who had no problem doing things that scripture clearly condemns and says is wrong, and and yet they still insisted that, no, it's okay for me to do this. I don't feel convicted about it, therefore it's okay for me to do these wrong things according to scripture. Well, friend, uh, maybe the reason you don't feel convicted is because you've sinned that sin so many times that you've become callous to it. It doesn't bother you anymore. That's a shame. That's a shame. Galatians 5.13, it says this, for brethren, talking to Christians, you have been called unto liberty. That means freedom. Only, watch this, use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. Okay, the word occasion means a base of operation. Okay, don't use your liberty for an occasion, for an opportunity to the flesh, but instead, what are we supposed to do? Here it is again. By love, serve one another. Look at verse 14. Here it is, we've just read this. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Go back to verse 13. You notice it says, for brethren, you've been called unto liberty. Now, if you just for a moment extract the middle part of that verse out and bring the word but up to liberty, look how it reads. For brethren, you have been called unto liberty by love, serve one another. That is the right use of the freedom that we have in Christ. Now, I know there are people who hear this and they say, well, he's a legalist. Well, you know, he's, there might be people even say, well, he's insinuating that you have to live a Christian life to go to heaven. I've never said that in my entire Christian life. Since the day I was saved, I've understood clearly that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And once you're saved, you cannot lose it no matter what you do, no matter how you live, you are secure. But that doesn't mean that God does not have a life for us to live. He does. He does. See, my Bible says that if we are responding properly to God's grace, we will exercise our liberty in servitude to other people. As a matter of fact, if I am growing as a Christian, that is the direction my life will take. Let me show it to you. Turn with me over to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Grace is a wonderful teacher, okay? Here's the truth, friend. Grace does not give us 15 things to do every day and says, okay, you're not spiritual unless you do all 15 of these, mark them off every single day. No, that's not grace. Grace is not list-oriented. Grace is life-oriented in Christ. Grace, Grace says, you know what? Jesus Christ should be your passion. Loving others should be your passion exercising that, okay? How many things? No, no, it's not, it's not, it doesn't have to do with numbers. It has to do with life. See, that's grace. Grace doesn't set up artificial limits. Grace says the sky is the limit. That's grace. Titus 2, for the grace of God, verse 11, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, all right? 
So have you trusted Christ as Savior? Yeah, how were you saved? Well, the only way you can be saved is by grace. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Here's what grace teaches. Teaching us, this is what grace teaches, that denying ungodliness, denying ungodliness, things that are not like God, that's what ungodly means. That denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, worldly passions, worldly desires, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our, our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar, a unique people. Notice this, zealous of good works, boiling hot when it comes to living for Christ. And yet people today, they'll take grace and they will abuse it and they will twist it. And they will, by the way they think and the way they live, they will be defining grace as a liberty to sin. Grace is not a liberty to sin. Grace is the liberty to live for Christ. That is what grace teaches us. Now, Jesus was a servant of others, willing even to sacrifice his own life, all right? That's important to realize. When people talk about Christ-likeness, nothing could be more like Christ than for us to live sacrificing our lives for other people. You never saw Jesus screaming, I've got my rights, or always reminding people, hey, I'm under grace. Never came out of his mouth. Why? Well, because he was more concerned on loving people and serving people than his own desires. Yet, what does the Bible say? According to John 1, it says, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth. He was the very personification of grace and truth. When you looked at Jesus, you saw grace in action. When you looked at Jesus, you saw truth in action. That is the truth of it. See, grace in the Christian life and in the church produces a team player mentality, not selfishness. Grace living never produces selfishness. It produces selflessness because that's the way Jesus was. What we do most should be to help other people. Okay, let's go back to Romans. And that issue, okay, uh, We do what most helps the greatest amount of people. That is the way we should live our lives. And with that in mind, going back to Romans, because it's interesting the way this passage in Romans chapter 13 goes together. Now, when you get to Romans 13, I want you to keep moving to Romans chapter 1. And I want to show you something. Romans chapter 1, because remember in Romans 13, it says, Oh, no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another has fulfilled the law right? Owe no man anything but to love one another. Here's the truth of it. He says, let no debt, or excuse me, owe no man anything, or let no debt remain outstanding. It's interesting because in the book of Romans, it talks another place about debts that we owe people. And another debt that we will never repay is the debt we owe the world to get the gospel to them. The gospel message, how to be saved. As a matter of fact, think about this, and this isn't original with me. Actually, it's original with God, but I heard a famous Bible uh, teacher say this years ago, and I never forgot it. He said this, 
the greatest act of love I can show another person is to share the gospel with him. Now that is a profound truth. Why? Because this is going to affect his eternity. Yes, I can give a cup of water to somebody. Yes, I can give a word of encouragement. Yes, I can provide some groceries. But friend, listen, there's nothing I could do to show more love for a person than to show them how they could escape hell and live forever in heaven. Nothing. Paul understood it. The very one who penned Romans 13, owe no man anything, and he says in Romans 1:14, I am a debtor. I am a debtor. There's a debt. He considered it as a debt. I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, with everything I've got, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein, in the gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, Begins with faith, ends with faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. You notice the terms of the gospel, how to be saved. It's through putting your faith in Jesus Christ that he died for your sins, was buried, and rose again the third day. It's not faith in yourself and your good works that won't save you. It's faith in what Jesus did on the cross as the payment for your sin. That's what saves you. So this is this great, yes, we shouldn't owe any man, anything but to love them. But what is the greatest act of love I can show to another person? It's to share the gospel with them. It's to share the gospel with them. Let's go back to Romans 13. So we've seen so far, we see the right attitude in our service. And what is it? It is for us to be driven by love, caring more about other people than myself. Meeting the need, whatever the need is, but the greatest need that there is is for them to hear how to be saved. And yet, isn't it interesting that the vast, vast, vast majority of Christians will never share the gospel with anyone? See, I mean, let's be honest about this. Why is that? Because we're more concerned about ourselves than somebody else. It's the same with every one of us. It's the same with every one of us. Right, so I'm afraid. Yeah, what is that? (laughs) What is fear? I'm more concerned about myself than that other person. Listen, friend, if we saw for a second a glimpse of hell, now we do have that in Luke to some extent, but if we could, uh, can I put it this way, experience it for a second, one second, it would completely change us. Let's move on. Verses 11 and 12, we see the right understanding of our service. We must understand the time. As I mentioned at the top of this message today, time is running out. God's timer is about down to zero. We're about to hear the trumpet. Another analogy I could give you is God's hourglass is about empty. And we're coming down to the point where, okay, time is over for this age we call the church age and the rapture is here. We must understand the time. The Lord is coming back very soon. What are we doing with that in mind? If we are to pay our debt to love one another as human beings, let's work together to share the gospel with the lost and dying world in which we live. I was, uh, I was um, a meeting with somebody just this uh, week, and we were, we were talking about 
these issues. And, and they said, and they're doing what they can. They've, they've taken our video that we have on our website, giving the hand gesture, showing the hand gesture, and they've taken that and they put it on their Facebook page. And everybody who gets to that Facebook page sees the gospel. If they'll click on it and watch it all the way through, they can understand how to be saved, you know? Now this person said, they say, you know what? I find a lot of people don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear it. Well, you know, what did Jesus say? Because this is what I said back. I said, Jesus said, there's going to be relatively few in heaven. See, our job, friends, is not to get discouraged by the fact that people are going to reject the gospel. The majority of them will. Our job is to sow the seed. Our job is to love people and to share the gospel so that they have the opportunity to trust in Christ as soon as they can because time is running out. I believe, we, well, Romans 13, verse 11, look at it. It says, and that knowing the time, that knowing the time, this comes on the tail end of loving thy neighbor as thyself. Love works no ill to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And that, in light of that, knowing the time that now, boy, that's a, that's a, that's a powerful word. Think about it. Now. You know what that means? Don't live in the past. Don't live in the future. This is how we need to think. This is the time for us to act. And that knowing the time, that now is the high time to awake out of sleep. Christian, wake up. That's what God's saying. Christians, wake up. Wake up. Now's the time to wake out of sleep. For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. Obviously. I got saved in 1972. Guess what? The rapture is a lot closer now than it was back then. Now, did I know that? No. Okay. Were there times since between then and now that I thought, okay, boy, it's coming soon. I'm looking for it today. Uh, you know, things are getting down. The, it's getting down to the wire, whatever, however you want to put it. God's timer is about to zero. Not yet, but I can tell you this, it's closer it's closer every day. The night is far spent. You know, uh, what is the saying? Um, the darkest hour of, of night is right before the day. I'm not sure, something, something like that. Here's an interesting thought, though, friends. Jesus was the light of the world. When he left, he told, uh, before he left, he said to those of us who have trusted Christ, we are the light of the world. We are to carry the light of Jesus Christ. What's interesting about it is this. He's the light of the world. He left. Look what it says. The night is far spent. Day is when light shows up again. I think in this text, I think it's talking about Jesus. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. The day of what? The day of the rapture. The day that Jesus is coming. He's the light of the world. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of of light, okay? I believe we are seeing the signs of his coming more than any time in history. That's not hype. That is taking scripture and comparing scripture with scripture. Everything's lining up for the coming tribulation period, okay? Everything needed to bring the things about in the book of Revelation that we read in Revelation, such as in chapter 13 of Revelation, talking about the mark of the beast and all these other things, one world government, one world church. We're, we're seeing all these things so coming together in an incredible 
way. God wants us to be living with our eyes open and saying, you know what, I've got a limited amount of time. I need to make my life count. If I love other people, I need to be faithful to the Lord. So number three, we see the right actions of our service. We see it in verses 13 and 14. We need to forsake carnal living, and we need to put the Lord and his ways first in our lives. It says in verse 13, let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, okay? These are all related and describe, they describe out of control drunkenness and perverted sexual behavior. That's what these, that's what verse 13 is talking about. They're completely unacceptable for the believer. Now I know there are people who say, well, no Christian lives like that. No, there are some that do. God says, and by the way, you know, Paul is writing to the believers in Rome. We see these things today in our society. Christians ought to live like they're children of God. We only have so much time. We're the children of light, not the children of darkness, 2 Thessalonians 3 tells us. We need to be serious about this. Look at verse 14. But put ye on like a garment. Put ye on, okay? It's like if I was to take my coat off right now and I was to put it on, that's exactly what this means. Put it on. Put ye on what? the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to be clothed, we ought to be seen. When people look at us, they ought to see the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what they should see. But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh, your old nature, your sin nature, to fulfill the lusts thereof. You know, today though, there are some good things that have come through this pandemic. And uh, one of them, I believe, is that, is that God has at least temporarily, he has extracted some of the idols out of American culture, such as sports, such as some hobbies, such as the worship of other things besides God. He's taken them away. He's taken them away. What's he doing? Well, one thing he's doing is he's saying, I want you to pay attention. I'm there. I'm real. You better pay attention. You better get serious about spiritual things. Friend, this idea of pandemic, okay, whether it is as far-reaching as they say or not, we're not even getting into that stuff. This idea of pandemic, though, um, listen, the COVID-19, it is a real virus. There's no doubt about it. And for many people, it is lethal. Majority of people, no, we know that's not the case. But you know what? Doesn't matter to the person who's died. You know, you can, well, how lethal is it? They're dead. That's pretty lethal for them. Here's the point, though. Here's the point. What is God doing with this? There's going to be all kinds of things like this during the seven-year tribulation period. God is just saying, listen, I'm just, I'm letting you know. I'm trying to get you to pay attention. Get serious about life, okay? There's more to life than leisure. There's more to life than just doing your own thing. And I'm talking, by the way, also to believers. Dear friend, if you're a Christian, there's more to life than play. We are more interested many times, though, in buying a new boat than we are in supporting missionaries who are going all over the world and preaching the gospel. Well, I, I don't have money to support the missionary. Well, let me ask you this. What are you spending your money on? Let's be serious. Let's think about it. We don't have much time left. We need to be more concerned about changing the eternal destiny of 
the lost. Now, let me, let me just tackle this going back to verse 13 for a moment. It says, uh, not knowing the time that now it's high time to wake out of sleep for now is our salvation near than when we believed or our, our deliverance. Talking about the rapture is what it's talking about. Yet there today, and can I tell you, it's been a growing number of people down through the last few decades, Christians I'm talking about, who will say, well, you know what? I used to be pre-trib. I used to believe the rapture's imminent. I don't believe that anymore. Well, that's kind of interesting. You know, I don't believe the Lord is coming back soon. And you ask them, why not? Well, people have been saying it for years. Well, guess what? The Lord has that excuse covered. I want you to see it. Look with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. As a matter of fact, anybody who says that tells us that that's another mark that we are, in fact, living in the last days. Because the Lord says in his word that in the last days, that's what people would say. Isn't that interesting? You know, here's the truth of it. Every one of us is found somewhere in the scripture. The way we are, there are people somewhere in the Bible that are that way. You can find yourself there. James talked about it. It's like a mirror. 2 Peter 3, verse 3, it says, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, mockers, walking after their own lusts. Now, let's just stop for just a second. Isn't it interesting? Notice that they are so consumed by their worldly passions that they don't want to believe Jesus is coming soon. Do you see it? That's the truth of it. They don't want to believe it. Because to believe it means they're going to be accountable for their lives. Verse 4, and saying, you notice they're scoffers, they're mockers, walking after their own lusts and saying, where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Things just continue on. I don't see anything happening. Well, you must be blind, friend. You don't see anything happening. He's coming. Time's running out. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 3, just a couple pages over to your right if you're in 2 Peter. 1 John chapter 3. This is written between AD 90. Remember, we're 2020 now. This is written between AD 90, AD 95, somewhere in that. We don't have an exact date. But it says in 1 John 3, 1, Behold what manner of love... Now, John was writing to Christians. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And if you're anticipating seeing Jesus, how does that affect your life? Verse three, and every man that hath this hope, this joyful anticipation in him, what is is the person who has that joyful anticipation of seeing Christ? Purifies himself. He purifies himself, even as he, God himself, is pure. See, friend, here's the truth of it. If you believe time is running out, if you believe Jesus is coming, if you believe as a Christian you're going to see him face to face, 
and we only have so much time left. If you believe once we get to heaven, we will stand at the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of the way we lived our lives since we got saved. It's going to have an effect on the way you live your life. It's going to have an effect. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans 13. Oh, no man, anything but to love one another. What's the greatest act of love we can do for another person? Share the gospel and then live a life that backs up that message of salvation and deliverance that comes through Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, Christian, if Jesus came today, would you be ashamed of the way you're living? Would you be ashamed of what you're watching on TV or videos? Would you be ashamed of the literature you're reading and looking at or the websites you're visiting? He could come back at any moment. Oh, that's a bummer. That's negative. I don't like those thoughts. They trouble me. Well, <laughs> you, know, you know, the best thing to do is confess. We need to confess our sin and we need to start living for Christ, making every day count. And you don't have to worry about the guilt stuff and the guilty conscience and all of that. You can have the blessings of walking in fellowship with God. How much better is that? Now you're in 1 John 3. Turn with me over to 1 John 5. Perhaps you've tuned in today and perhaps you're wondering, well, you know what? Uh, wow, this is interesting. This is something for me to think about. I want to I take this last few minutes and explain to you, friend, how beyond a shadow of a doubt you can be absolutely sure of going to heaven when you die. Let me give you an illustration, and then we will look at some scriptures here in 1 John chapter 5. Okay, watch this now. If this hand represents you and me, we're going to let my wallet represent all the things we do wrong. God calls them sin, okay? We break his laws, we break his commandment, we violate his scripture. God calls them sin, okay? Sin means to miss the mark of God's perfection. We're sinners, everyone, including me. God loves us, though. God hates our sin. See, sin separates us from God. To go to heaven, you have to be sinless, and none of us are. And God says, because we've sinned against him, that sin has to be paid for, and he says the wages of sin is death. If we did it ourselves, we'd have to die and spend forever separated from God in hell. God doesn't want that for us. God loves us. He hates our sin, yes. Loves us. Religion comes along and says, well, the way you get rid of the sin is by good works, and yet there's not a verse in the Bible that says that. As a matter of fact, the scripture puts it this way, for by grace are you saved through faith, faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. See, there's nothing we can do. Remember, you've got to be perfect, not good by human standards, perfect. None of us are, therefore we're all disqualified. God knowing that, God understanding there's nothing we could do to save ourselves, God provided the perfect payment for our sins through substitution. And that payment came through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. If this represents Jesus, he came into the world sinless, went to the cross, and he took our sins upon himself. He made the payment, leaving us nothing to pay for. He did it all. He made the payment, died, was buried. He rose from the grave. And he says, if you will trust in him, Put your faith in him as your savior, not depending upon yourself, but only on him. The moment you trust in him, he will give you everlasting life and you can know you're going to heaven because he promises it. Where does it say that? Right here. 1 John 5 and verse 10. It says, he that believeth on the son of God hath the witness in himself. 
He that believeth not God hath made him a liar. In other words, if you don't believe this is true, you're calling God a liar. Because he hath not believed the record that God gave of his son. And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Do you see that? How do you get eternal life? It's through Jesus Christ. It's in his son. It's not in you. It's not in your works. It's in him. Verse 12, he that hath the son hath life. And he that hath not the son of God hath not life. You trust him as your savior or you don't trust him as your savior. If you trust in him, you have eternal life. If you don't, you don't have it. Verse 13, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the son of God. You put your faith in Jesus Christ. Look what it says. That you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the son of God. Okay, you can know you have eternal life. You can be sure of it now. Why? Because God can't lie. You can trust him. You can trust in his son that your sins have been paid for through Christ. Now, see, you can reject the payment Jesus made, and that payment then is not good on your behalf, and then you die in your sin. You don't want that. There are no second chances. But if you'll trust in Christ, he'll give you everlasting life. I share that with you because I love you. I want you to go to heaven, and more than I do, God does. And dear friend, you need to trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus is coming soon. When's he coming? No one knows. He's got his own timer, and he doesn't share it with anybody. Well, friends, that concludes this edition of Voice of Assurance. Thanks so much for listening. And would you share this ministry with a friend? To contact us or learn more about our ministry, please visit www.northlandchurch.com. Your prayers and support for this ministry are greatly appreciated. Thank you so much, and God bless you.